I think I just wanted to acknowledge the truth of change and maybe turn the mic down a little bit <laughs> as we do that. Um, just that Julie asked me to lead the teaching this evening and um, she has her exquisite way of doing that and I have mine and mine's a little bit different, maybe a little bit uh, more formal compared to what happened last night. They're both needed, really needed. So my intention is to um, give a talk for a while and then we'll see how our energy is, if there's time for some inquiry or questions, if we're feeling tired and want to take some rest, we'll just kind of check in and see as it goes. But I feel like I'm echoing a whole bunch. Is that just my own perception or is that actually happening? (laughs) Maybe it's the ceilings. Maybe I've suddenly developed an echo. Ah, different. Yeah. Jean, can you still hear me? <laughs> it's important. <laughs> you know, I mean, we take these teachings in through the direct experience of the body, but it's nice to have the sound be, has some meaning as well. <laughs> mm, yeah, so. So we already turned that on. Great. I want to start this evening with some meditation instructions that were actually given a thousand years ago from a teacher to a student. And yet, as I sit here with all of you, I see that they're still very much alive. And so if you want to close your eyes and take them in that way and see where they touch you, that's fine. Or just listen to the words. (coughs) Meditate on the vastness of the sky with no center and no edge. Clouds are just the sky's play. Rest right in the sphere of the sky itself. Resembling the unchanging solid mountain, meditate with steadiness and solidity. Unfazed by transition and change, abide in steadfastness. Realize plants and trees are manifestations of the mountain. Meditate on your self-mind, without liking or disliking, realize that the disturbing thought flow is a manifestation of the mind. Dissolve yourself into the very essence of the mind. So for thousands of years, we've been cultivating individually and collectively this sense of space, of earth, of ground, internally, externally, and then this beautiful self-mind that we each have with all of its individual flavors. And that disturbing thought flow that so many of you have come into interviews and um, talked about in some detail that we all have, these disturbing thought flows. And I love that it doesn't say, realize that the disturbing thought flow is a problem. 
it says, realize the disturbing thought flow is a manifestation of mind. It's mind being itself. And then there's this essence that can hold the disturbance. It's very poignant for me um, sitting here tonight because what I realized as I was reflecting on what I might want to say, I first came into contact with the possibility of space and breath moving through space with earth and groundedness um, in a circle of women. And when I really think about it, the circle of women is so similar to the circle we're sitting in now that it's a bit eerie for me because um, I was 17 years old at the time and um, sitting in a circle of women, there was about 20 of us. There were about 20 of us here. It was night. There were candles, you know, flickering. Um, most of the women there were older than me in age. Um, a few of them I knew, most of them I didn't. And I found myself sitting there with kind of two qual- qualities. And one was this great vulnerability. I felt very vulnerable sitting in this circle of women. And the other one was kind of this curiosity bordering on excitement. And at that time in my life, vulnerability and curiosity bordering on excitement were not qualities that were actively alive in my life as far as what I was willing to experience, much less show to anyone else. Um, So I knew there was something special going on. And in that circle of women, there were all kinds of um, spiritual practices happening And one of the many was the experience of being with the body, being breathed, being with the breath. And that, among others of the practices, resonated for me. And so I found myself soon after in my room, in my house, um, building an altar that had the elements represented in it, the earth, the air, the fire, the water, and the space, and lighting the candles the way I had done in the women's circle and just sitting there quietly and breathing. I didn't really know what I was doing, but I just had this calling for perhaps some peace and quiet. What's interesting about all that is that actually my mother was the one who brought me to this women's circle. And What's interesting about that is the reason I was so desperate at that young age for some peace and some quiet and some ease um, had everything to do with my relationship with my mother. Um, She was a deeply, deeply spiritual wise woman who had equal qualities of really deep wounding. And so... I got the direct experience of this paradox of um, the fearless warrior mother who 
would just face anything that would come inside her heart. And what came inside her heart were some pretty big storms, huge depressions, big crises. Um, she actually wasn't very functional in the world uh, for a great portion of my life. And so there was a lot of pain and confusion in my heart because of that. So this deep spirituality, this deep wounding that runs through the feminine lineage, you know, in my line, from my mother to her mother, uh, brought me to this practice. And I really still consider my mom my first great teacher. She'll always be my first great teacher. And one of the last gifts that she gave to me, and one of the greatest, was actually the last week of her life. And she died of breast cancer when I was in my early 20s. And the last week of her life, she was in a coma. And by that point, I had already been meditating for a number of years. But there was something about that week. I actually consider it to be my first retreat. I hadn't sought a retreat yet at that point. And I consider it to be my first retreat. And the reason that I feel that way is because there was such excruciating grace present in those timeless seven days. Um, Experiencing directly the timelessness and the space where all of the obligations that I had, I was in the middle of graduate school and all kinds of things going on just dropped away. And I showed up at the house and just stayed. And just stayed there. And somehow there was enough space and enough time and enough groundedness to just be with things as they were. And things as they were, you know, was my mother dying in a lot of pain, um, but not able to talk to me, which then gave me the space to let the whole kind of catastrophe that I was still holding in my heart channel through. And so I'd find myself sitting by her bed, and, you know, the huge grief would come, and the wailing, followed by the rage that I'd never been able to express to her while we were in interaction because she couldn't bear the weight of the rage, actually. Psychologically, there wasn't enough fortitude for it. And, you know, raging, you know, followed by just curling up and sleeping and heavy and numb. And Julie talking about the numbness, you know, be with the numbness, darling. It's like, whew. So it was just this space, and I remember that every day when hospice would come to change her bed sheets or whatever they needed to do, it was very painful for her. And, and so I actually made the decision to go with my younger sister and take a walk during that time. Um, and what was interesting is I really hadn't trained in walking meditation, but we would take this walk around my block, and it was about a five-minute walk. 
and it would take about a half an hour. And I just kept turning to my sister and saying, you know, I just can't walk any faster. I just have to feel my feet on the ground. I didn't know what I was doing, really. I just knew I had to feel my feet on the ground and just go really slow and let the neighbors coming out of their house touch me and the sky and the clouds. And You know, these experiences that we all have in our lives that just bring us more and more into intimate contact with these realities. After my mother died, one of the realizations I had from that week was I have to sit a retreat. I got it really clearly at some point in the week that this is what all my teachers have been talking about when they kept mentioning retreats that all the qualities that are inherently possible in the retreat were happening in that house. And so I felt like I might be able to do that. I thought, I have to go on a retreat. And I actually went to Anna Douglas, who I was working with at the time, and she was very dear. She said to me, she said, yes, Heather, yes, you will go on a retreat. But you have to learn to love again first without your mother here. Don't go now. You have to learn to love again. And I didn't have any idea what she was talking about at all. It's like, learn to love again. It's like, I need to grieve. What does love have to do with it? But I took her advice and uh, I waited almost nine months, which... I wasn't really thinking about that at the time, but now thinking back, it's like, oh yeah, long enough to give birth to something. And then I showed up on my first retreat here. And at my very first interview, or it might have been my second, down in room five, down there, I sat down with a teacher that I'd never met, And it was so interesting what he said to me after speaking with me for just a few minutes. I thought, how could he know this about me? Just a few minutes. He said, you know, Heather, he said, you're kind of like a powerful, high-strung horse. Okay, (laughs) thank you, I think. You're kind of like a powerful, high-strung horse. And you're in this corral that is so tight that you have no space. And what this practice can offer you is space. And you can actually, over the time and over the training, start to move that corral out. And, you know, the way that I started thinking about it as I practiced was maybe I could create, you know, um, a gate and maybe it was locked shut and maybe I'd be wheeling at the lock or maybe it would just suddenly open and then it would contract again. But creating expanded space until, you know, here's this high-strung, powerful horse standing in a field where she can't even see where the boundaries are. And that's a possibility for us. So it was almost like my first retreat at my mother's bedside showed me uh, the greatness of the possibilities of what's really possible 
And then by the time I showed up on my first Spit Rock retreat, it was more about this disturbing thought flow. It was more about the clouds obscuring the sky. Um, and I was clouded with grief and fear and anxiety and, and worry and um, visions and plans and that I was consumed with and just clouded. So then became this long, arduous process of working with the space and the ground and the container. That process continues on and on. You know, probably for the rest of my life, probably for the rest of all of our lives. So I thought I'd talk a little bit tonight about the clouds in the sky. So there's these things that that cloud our knowing, that come, they're visitors. We think they've moved in for good. They haven't. And then this vast sky, this space. So one of the insistent visitors that can feel uh, like quite a cloud bank that's been brought up on this retreat is the experience of a body when it's not so pleasant, when it's not so comfortable. And somebody said last night, uh, you know, this is, this is a body retreat. There's, there's all kinds of aches and pains and, you know, different things people have said my stomach hurt or my shoulders or, you know, whatever it is. We, we come here on these retreats and it's like, wow, you know, our bodies are filled with bliss, but they're also filled with suffering. The bliss is usually a little bit easier to be with, <laughs> but not always, not always. Sometimes it's the bliss that, oh no, couldn't feel that bliss. Oh, maybe I'll just turn the bliss notch down a little bit. You know, not too much. So it can be either way. This body is teacher. This this first foundation of place where we cultivate this non-judgmental, compassionate attention moment by moment as it is you know and we come in here and we have our physical history of the injuries or the illnesses that are current or prior it's so interesting actually recently I was reading back on some old journals which I rarely do really old journals. Uh, We're talking about when I was 10 years old, old journals. I can't believe I still have them, but I do. And quite recently I was reading one of them, and in this journal I had written about this traumatic fall that I had had when I was 10. Um, We put up a new swing in my house, and I was being wild on it the way I like to do, and apparently I went flying and smashed my knee on um, some bricks. Now, I have no memory of this injury at all. 
but it's been kind of interesting reading that and noticing that as I even grow as older as I am now that there's kind of this ongoing thing that comes and goes with this knee here. You know, so we're just carrying these things, whether we know it or not. And, and who knows if it's connected or not. But just acknowledge we're carrying things that sometimes we're not even still consciously aware of. And I love that on these women's retreats that the teaching is take care of the body. You know, the teaching is when we come in and there's exhaustion, rest. Not muscle through it. I mean, there's moments when we need to muscle through it, but the predominance is ease, rest. You know, it's okay. If more yoga is needed to honor that, that's not separate from sitting and walking meditation. And I love it that I don't have to sell that here. When I teach other retreats, I have to sell that. I have to bring in teachings and convince people that it's okay. Um, it's just such a pleasure to, you know, be with a group of other practitioners who know this. I love the fact that even the Buddha knew this, and that after all those years of intense body-denying practices, where, as you probably know, it's said that if you touch the Buddha's belly, you'd feel his backbone, and if you touch his backbone, you feel his belly, and one grain of rice a week, and all these very um, trying to transcend the physicalness. That after he, you know, received the rice milk from Sujata and sat down under the tree and said, you know, might there be another way? Is basically what he said. And discovered that there was and found this middle way uh, that when he would be teaching, you know, he's, he's very human. So I don't know if you're aware of this, but he had an injured foot. He also had a bad back. And so sometimes when he was teaching, he'd be teaching late into the night in the middle of some long discourse. You can imagine everyone just hanging on to every word and maybe, you know, someone in the back sleeping. I hope there was someone in the back sleeping. I like to think about that. You know, that you can take in the teachings multiple different ways. That he would actually stop in the middle of his teaching and kind of check in and say um, to one of his kind of main students whose name was uh, Sariputra, and he would say, you know, I'm going to have you take over the rest of the teaching tonight. I have a bit of a backache and I'm going to go lie down. And he would get up in the middle of the teaching and go lie down and take care of the backache and leave his student there to finish the teaching. You know, how beautiful. And the other thing I love about that is the freedom that's expressed in that. Uh, the way the texts describe it is that he would go and do that um, without struggle over that pain, you know, mindful and without struggle. So there was a presence with the pain and a lack of struggle with the pain, but an honoring of the pain, not just internally, but in action. The most appropriate response is to go lie down. Here, you take over the teaching. That's beautiful. 
So there's body. And then there's the relationship of body to mind, mind heart. I'll mention a few of those kind of familiar states of mind that can really cloud things, that can really color our sense of what's going on in our direct experience. Um, There's a way that when we're not aware of them, uh, the whole world becomes colored by them. You're probably quite familiar with them, but sometimes it's nice to just call them in by name and give them a little bit of honoring. So there's our good old friend greed, the mind that wants, the mind that lusts after things. And then there's the flip side of greed, uh, the good friend aversion, which is the pushing away. There's the grasping and the pushing away, which sometimes turns into, I hate this, or I'm terrified of this. Aversion. There's the sleepies that people have been talking about, the heaviness, the, I love the traditional words actually, sloth and torpor. They really, you know, the words work. You know, and, and, and in a bigger sense, that can slide into a sense of, you know, weightiness that can slide into depression, you know, that can get pretty big. And then the flip side of that, which is the restlessness that comes. You know, whether it's the anxious mind or body or the worrying or the, just the restlessness. And then there's the one to be most respectful of, which is doubt. Because doubt's the one that we can doubt ourselves or our teachers or this retreat practice thing to the point that we have our car keys in hand and we're halfway down the hill to our car and we don't even notice that we're just filled with doubt. So it can really take us where we might not want to go. So traditionally these things are called the five hindrances. And More recently in my teaching, I've just had to totally reclaim them and reframe them. Because to me, calling them the five hindrances is overemphasizing the cloud-like nature of them. It's like aversion comes and everything that happens we hate or don't like, you know. Or anxiety comes and every single little thing that happens has this anxious quality to it. Uh, It can really cloud things. So I think that word hindrance really emphasizes the clouds. And what I'm interested in is remembering the space. And so I've renamed them. And what I actually call them is the five wake-up calls. Because they are. You know, we can say, oh, big problem. And in that moment, they're a big problem. And we can say, oh... You know, I was drifting along, just kind of cruising through this retreat. Nice time, good food, you know, beautiful land. And then all of a sudden we get caught in some wanting attack. 
And it just totally wakes us up like, whoa, you know, I really want to be present with this because this rules my life. It rules my relationships. You know, I mean, we've all got our flavors. For myself, I'm a big aversive type. So if I get into that rut, everything is just not quite good enough. Yeah, I know what my flavor is. It's a helpful thing to know. Because then I don't take it so seriously. It's like, oh, wake up. You know, sometimes I even hear the alarm clock going off in my head at the moment that I notice it. Like, you know, all right, here I am. You know, there's space. I just woke up. You know, I could spend 10 minutes beating myself up for how I should have done it different. Uh, and then beat myself up for the fact that I just beat myself up. <laughs> um, but why? Yeah. So, five wake-up calls. There's a lot of different ways to work with those. And we're an old students group, so I'm figuring that you know a lot of them. And if you have any uh, particular grapplings on this retreat, we're always happy to talk about them more. But I just want to talk about one kind of metaphorical technique that I've found really useful. And it actually comes from a story that I was told um, about a father and his son. And the son was about 10 years old, and the father and his son were out walking in the woods. And it was late afternoon, they were taking a really big, long walk, and, you know, those of you who have children, you know, things always take a little longer than you think that they're going to take in terms of walking. And... So it's starting to get dark. There's in the woods, so it's darker in the woods. And uh, the young boy started to get afraid, you know, genuinely afraid, not just like a little afraid, but afraid. You know, there's no way out there in the middle of the woods. And he just said, you know, Dad, I'm scared. And the father, bless his heart, you know, been meditating for 25 years. And his response to his son was this. He said, oh, you know, yeah, you're afraid. That's okay. You know, why don't you greet the fear? Why don't you say, hello, fear, and greet it? Here, we'll try it together. Hello, fear. The little boy tried it. Hello, fear. And he was still really scared. He said it a few times. And Dad said, well, we'll just keep walking. And we can keep saying, hello, fear, as it comes. And as they did that, and I really think with his acceptance of the truth of that, um, the little boy slowly started to get less afraid. And at some point, they weren't out of the woods yet, and he said to his dad, you know, I'm, I'm not afraid anymore, dad. And the dad said, great, now we need to say goodbye to the fear and acknowledge that it's leaving. So they said goodbye, fear. A few months after that happened, it was summer. And the father was inside, and there was a sliding door, and the door was open. And 
the little boy was playing outside, and it was dusk, it was getting dark. And the father just happened to be standing by the door, and through the door, this little boy was playing outside, through the door, he heard these words, Hello, fear. And he just stopped. He just stopped in the doorway. It just... He didn't engage his son. He didn't say anything at all. It was one of those moments of grace where the wisdom was there without any parent needing to say anything at all, including validating it. It was already validated. And so he just stood there and waited a few minutes. And after a few minutes, he heard, Goodbye, fear. And he just got tears in his eyes because his son got it, you know. He really got it. I think about that story a lot. And just, can we offer that to ourselves? When the fear comes, when the grief comes, when the wanting comes, the despair, hello. You know, and there's this spirit of bowing. If you like to bow, I quite like to bow. Just bowing to, welcome, hello, fear. And then it lives, you know. And then it passes, and remembering to say goodbye, acknowledging that it's been born, it's lived its life, and now it's disappearing back into the vast space from which it arose. Goodbye. So the clouds and the space. And in terms of speaking about the essence of the vast space of mind, actually what I want to call in is the spirit of Prajnaparamita. Because the vast space of the essence of our minds and who we really are is actually quite beyond gender. And yet, to acknowledge that there are these two truths, you know, the absolute truth of beyond gender and the relative truth of gender that's real, that needs to be honored. And so we can talk about Buddha nature and we tend to think of Buddha, and we tend to think of Buddha as male. We can talk about Prajnaparamita, who is the mother of all the Buddhas. Um, Prajnaparamita. Prajna is wisdom. Paramita is perfection. So it's the perfection of wisdom. And when I first heard about the the essence of this existence of Prajnaparamita. 
I thought it was really beautiful, this idea that there was a mother of all the Buddhas. Like, oh, yeah, of course, the Buddhas had a mother. You know, great. But it wasn't until later in my practice that I discovered that actually she's not a being in the same way that the Buddha was a human being. What she actually is, is this direct experience of the sacred feminine, of the unconditioned, and metaphorically it's kind of held as this vast birth canal through which every Buddha-to-be must pass before they can manifest their awakening in the world. And so that includes all of us, because we're all Buddhas-to-be in some sense. We're all awakened beings-to-be. And we can all pass through this vast space that we've been living in these days. You know, visited by clouds, yes, but we've each of us has tapped in deeply to that space, which we must pass through in order to manifest that awakening in the world. The meaning of the Prajnaparamita is not to be looked for elsewhere. It exists within yourself. Neither real nor endowed with characteristics, the nature of mind is the great clear light. If looking for a simile, one could say, it is like space. If you're not familiar with some of the images of Prajnaparamita, which are quite beautiful, there are three Prajnaparamita power spots on the land here that I wanted to mention. One is uh, her image in the meditation hall down below, that the Buddha sits on one side as a representation of the awakened masculine, and that it was very important to us at Spirit Rock that there also be the representation of Prajnaparamita as the awakened feminine. And um, I don't know if she'll tell it, but Julie has a beautiful, beautiful story about how Prajnaparamita came to be here um, that maybe we can convince her to tell at some point. It's very inspiring. So I'll leave that for her. Another Prajnaparamita power spot is just outside the meditation hall in the back where the creek runs. And if you walk outside the doors there, there she is with all of the offerings on her lap. Feathers and shells and rocks and notes and blessings. And you're welcome to offer one to her. Um, I often do walking meditation there. And the last Prajnaparamita power spot is really new. And so I want to make sure that we all know about this and can share this with other women who practice here particularly because it just got born uh, a month ago. And um, Julie and I teach the women's class here on Thursday mornings. And we do a solstice ritual every solstice. And at the end of the solstice ritual this year, 
we planted a tree. And it was a tree to Prajnaparamita. And there's a senior student of Sultram Alioni, who is a um, great Western tree and master um, in the practice of Prajnaparamita. And so Josephine is a senior student of her. And so this tree was planted in the spirit of Prajnaparamita, um, in the spirit of the joining hands of Taramandala, which is the center that Satramalioni has um, founded and is a teacher for, and Spirit Rock. And so where she is, is right by the kiosk where you pull in to check in for the retreat it's the first tree past that and it's the only tree that doesn't have a little deer fence around it because it's a different type of tree and a bit of a taller tree and so that's how it's distinctive so if you happen to walk down there as part of your practice on this retreat to know she's there and what I love about the fact that we planted her there is the spirit of Prajnaparamita and how now every person who drives onto the land at Spirit Rock drives past Prajnaparamita, you know, enters that great birth canal of awareness and the feminine, comes here, practices, is of service in various different ways, and then drives back out through that birth canal to manifest what has been cultivated here in the world. It's just so inspiring to me. So you can visit her at some point um, in your travels back and forth to Spirit Rock now or later, but I want you to know she's there. I want to talk about two qualities of this essence of Prajnaparamita or this vast mind. And the first quality I want to talk about is bliss. And I want to talk about it through the teachings of Tenzin Palmo. Do you all know who Tenzin Palmo is? Oh, she's so important to know in terms of woman's lineage. I'll put her up on the altar. Um, but she is an English woman who is a um, known in the Tibetan tradition, and she's actually the first Western uh, woman ordained as a nun by the Karmapa many, many years ago. And her claim to fame and respect is that she spent 12 years in a cave at 13,000 feet in the Himalayas, practicing by herself, braving, well, it's a whole other Dharma talk what she went through. Um, her intention was to gain full enlightenment, the kind of enlightenment that the Buddha experienced as a woman. And that was her lion's roar. She said, you know, Every single one of the Buddhists has been men. I make the vow to practice for as many lifetimes as it takes in order to reach full Buddhahood 
in the female form. Not because one is better than the other or because it really matters, but because it's out of balance and we need to bring the balance back in. So, pretty amazing practitioner. Here's what she has to say about bliss in the vast mind. Bliss is the fuel of retreat, she said. You can't do any long-term practice seriously unless there's inner joy, because joy and enthusiasm are what carry you along. The nature of mind is both spaciousness and bliss. It's the state of knowing without the knower. And I love this part of what she says. And you know, when it's realized, it isn't very dramatic at all. There's no cosmic explosion, no fanfare of celestial trumpets. It's like waking up for the first time, surfacing out of a dream, and then realizing you've been dreaming. It's like breathing in stale air, or normal way of being. It's muffled. Waking up is not sensational. It's ordinary, but it's extremely real. So this ordinariness, availableness of bliss. Imagine that. I don't know about you, but I had a pretty strong story going on early in my practice that if I just suffered enough, then I'd, you know, be free. <laughs> I just gotta suffer one more. I gotta dig up one more childhood memory, you know. Then I'll be happy. And what I've learned is it's not cheating to be happy now. It doesn't mean I'm not going to go back and when the pain from the past comes, sit with it. I don't have to go running around looking for it. It's going to come. If I'm receptive and available to whatever comes, everything will come. So not cheating to be happy. So it's something I like to encourage us individually, collectively, these last precious days of the retreat, to not miss the moments of happiness that are already there, to really celebrate, to not, oh, you know, it's so amazing to just sit and watch this deer doing its thing. Oh, I better go and wait for the sitting. Well, you know, it's okay. A couple extra seconds there, just, ah, dear me. Since standing here, you know, whatever it is, the cup of tea, you know, the warmth. It's okay to call it in. That it actually supports the letting go process. And not that thing that some of us were taught, like, I'm good, I'm happy. No, that's not what I'm talking about. You know what I mean? Kind of. Oh yeah, I'm doing fine, everything's great, you know, I'm the happy woman in your life. That's not what I'm talking about. So then the second quality is compassion. And Sultram Ariani says about compassion, when we look for our true nature, it's indescribable. But what we do find is a kind of warmth, 
which is compassion. And I love that because then I can just feel, oh, the flavor is compassion, the flavor of this thing that we can feel that's hard to talk about, bliss, compassion, yeah, flavors. So the caring heart in response to the suffering that we do experience, this compassion. And the way that I bring it into my own practice and the way that I'm teaching it these days um, is not so much in terms of uh, some of the more formal practices of heart that we teach here at Spirit Rock, the loving kindness, the compassion, joy, equanimity, which are beautiful and wonderful and um, very helpful. Think about it a little bit more organically. So if I'm living or if I'm sitting, you know, whether it's formal practice or life practice, and the pain comes, and you know, you've each, either in interviews or, or in the circles, shared, you know, this is the struggle, this is the pain, whether it's physical or heart or mind or societal. It's just taking a moment to breathe with it without having to have it be some big deal thing. And just this sense of caring. And for me, there's three levels of it. So it engages my whole experience in caring. There's the thought level where I'll just say, oh, I care. Just say to myself, I care. I care about this suffering. And then dropping down into the heart and feeling the pain and feeling the caring and seeing what lives there in the body and the heart. But for me, it also has to be um, very directly physical. And so I find that I spend a great deal of time when things are challenging or there's suffering or pain, like this. One hand on the belly and one hand on the heart. And I know that it's often taught to do this with the hand on the heart. It makes sense. But for me, I need to have my other hand on my belly. Number one, because I want the engagement of balance, both hands. But number two, there's something about the guts and the suffering. That there's the heart that bleeds when we're in pain, but there's also the guts. You know, and, and how much our guts actually have to teach us about what's true in a moment of suffering. So to actually hold them and like, oh, I care. You know, this hurts. They're all sucked in or they're all, my stomach hurts or whatever it is. You know, I care. So before I close, I would put out the invitation that if you wanted to take a moment and just see if that resonates for you. You know, we've been sitting for a while. Maybe there's some ache in the body that needs a caring. Maybe there's some tiredness that needs some caring. Maybe the story is big right now and it needs some caring. could be anything. So some of us like to really put our whole bodies into it. And some of us don't.
but just a sense of breathing with. If there are any clouds, cloud banks, fog banks covering the space. Any constriction or pain in the mind. I care. The last thing I want to share is a poem by um, Urshani, who is a woman who does a lot of solitary practice. There is a brokenness out of which comes the unbroken, a shatteredness out of which blooms the unshatterable. There is a sorrow beyond all grief which leads to joy and a fragility out of whose depths emerges strength. There is a hollow space too vast for words through which we pass each loss, but whose darkness we are sanctioned into being. There is a cry deeper than all sound, whose serrated edges cut the heart as we break open to the place inside which is unbreakable and whole all while learning to sing. So I offer this for your reflection this evening and with great gratitude to the kindness of your attention. should take a minute and move the body, huh? Tired, achy. No have-tos, but if you need to. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.